Father, we thank you for just all the information that we have available to us as they do not have in some of these communist countries where they're just given what is purported to be truth, but it is actually lies and it is detrimental to the citizenry. We would ask, Lord, that you would be beneficial to the citizenry here this morning and those who are watching online. We would ask that you would fill us full of your spirit that would be able to speak the truth without error. And we'd do so boldly because we know that you are our God and there is no other. And you are the one who protects. You are the one who builds up, the one who blesses, and you are the one who tears down. And I would ask, Lord, that uh, the chicanery, the deception, the evil that is in our country right now would be completely exposed and that people would wake up. But, Father, we could only do this and have an effect if more people followed you. And I would ask that more people would. You would give us the ability to share the gospel. But, Lord, as we do that, as we prepare, as we train, we ask that you would instruct us for those very purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Second Corinthians chapter 8 that we left off with, it dealt with the Macedonian churches giving out of their poverty. And Paul gave instruction to the church in Corinth on how they should be giving. It was done under the, or in order to relieve the suffering of others in the church in Jerusalem. And Paul praises God for the faithfulness of those in the church of Corinth because they had decided to give a gift, an amount of money that would go back to the church in Jerusalem. So we're picking it up in Second Corinthians chapter 9, and he continues on this giving. He says, there is no need for me to write you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you in Achaia or Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift not as one grudgingly given. So the church in Corinth expressed this desire to give. And Paul boasted about their willingness to give, just like the churches in Macedonia had done. And the churches in Macedonia would have been Berea, Philippi, and Thessalonica. And Paul decided to send others ahead on his next visit to ensure their deeds matched their words. In other words, just don't be sayers of the word, but be doers of the word. So Paul was a little bit worried that they wouldn't come through with what they had said, and that would have presented a problem. Not having the offering ready could have been a distinct possibility because of some of the corrupt people and even the leaders in the church of Corinth. And Paul wanted to make sure it was going to be okay because as he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, there are those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. 
So they siphon off the money for themselves. And so we thought, you know, there may be some nefarious characters there that would wish to keep some of the money, and the money wouldn't be going to this gift that they had already said that they would be a part of giving. Now, this would have damaged the work in the church of Corinth. Other believers would have said, the Corinthians are just talkers, and they're probably not even saved. That would be any church that said they were going to do something and it was going to be a generous act of some kind and then they didn't follow through with it. There would be disdain for that church from those outside the church and from other churches. They would just shake their head in disbelief. So to avoid problems like this, Paul sent others ahead to help the Corinthians prepare the promised offering and then he encourages them all the more As he tells them, I'm going to send somebody there. He says in verse 6, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful is what we understand to be hilarious. Now, when you find something hilarious, how do you laugh? It's a, a guttural laugh. You bust it out. You laugh so hard. Have, do you guys know uh, dry bar comedy on YouTube? If you've never listened to some of the dry bar comedy and it's all clean, uh, it, it takes place up in Utah where the Mormons are, and they bring in these comedians, and the comedy is like Red Skelton or Jonathan Winters type comedy it's not like the comedy in the comedy stores out there and some of these comedians you just want to bust out laughing and they they talk about everyday life and things and it's good and and that's how we're supposed to give where we give it (laughs) and you're giving the money in that fashion not just cheerfully oh this is so much fun but you're actually almost laughing about being able to give And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So when it comes back in verse 6, to he who sows sparingly, I have a chance to sow seed on a regular basis. I usually buy seed in the 25-pound bag, sometimes in the 50-pound bag, and I take it in my hand, and I have a bucket, and I'm able to cast it out there. And if I want a lot of grass coming up, I cast a lot of seed. Now, in the past, I've instructed some people on how to cast the seed, and I told them that you want a little bit of separation between each one of the seeds when you cast it down there. And I went to a job once where there was no dirt All you saw was seed everywhere. And that's a lot of seed. It was so much seed that when it came up, half of it died because it could, it was getting choked out by some of the other in there. There's a proper way to cast seed. You don't take your bank account, clear it out and give it to somebody. No, that's going to cause a problem or to give it to an organization. It's going to cause a problem. You sow enough because if, if you sow a seed, now you guys know corn, right? You take a single kernel of corn and you put it in the ground and you might get lucky and get two or three ears of corn. How many kernels of corn are on each one of those ears? There's probably 
couple hundred easy, you know, and you go through and you eat that thing like a buzzsaw and it goes around and it tastes really good and it's enjoyable. But you get off of one corn stalk, you get hundreds of new little seeds which come out there. So it doesn't take much, but if you sow corn in the field, you're going to receive a return. It's like scripture says, 30, 60, 100 times that which is sown. And that's how he tells us we should be giving. Not everything, not under compulsion, not reluctantly, but, you know, we should be doing it. Verse 12, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So here you have Paul focusing on obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. In in a couple of places in scripture, it refers to our walk should equal our confession. Now, is anyone going to be perfect? No, that's not the case. I was having a discussion with some of the youth group this last week, and we were dealing with Calvinism versus Arminianism, and are those two good or they're not good, and they're, they're asking me about it, and, and some are saying that, you know, that, the sin that comes in that prevents people from coming to God and then there's this idea of regeneration. You have to be born again before you can be justified and there's a a way that it happens and just this argument that we were getting, not really argument, just a discussion we were getting into about all of that and the discussion, in the discussion, it came up to this one point that there are Calvinists, not all, but some who believe that there have been people that have been born to burn they have no chance of being saved and then there are those who are saved that had no choice in the matter that god saved them and they didn't choose this is called hyper calvinism i reject those i don't believe that scripture is true in that and then we started to get into a discussion about gradation like how much sin can you commit before you're declared not a believer and those people who don't live up to their confession of faith. And so I I started querying these kids on it. And, you know, when they start thinking, they get questions like that, they look up and to the right. And they start thinking about it like, well, how am I going to resolve this? I said, well, obviously, uh, to know that you're saved, you have to be perfect and not commit a single sin, right? And they go, well, no, 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 no. Well, how much sin can you commit and still be saved? Well, obviously, somebody who's involved in practicing a sin, they're not saved. I said, okay, so where's the dividing line in there? How much sin can you commit and still be saved? And they didn't know. I said, well, that's good. You don't know. God knows. Not that you lose your salvation. It's just that you were never saved. And I said, somebody could be deep in a sin and still be saved. I said, have you not read Galatians chapter 6, verse 1? You who are spiritual, restore the individual caught in a sin. In other words, they can't get out. 
They're practicing the sin. They don't know what to do. And those who are spiritual are supposed to help them come about. So there can be those who are just caught in sin that can't get out that are still saved. Even the church in Corinth, I think I've mentioned this before, when it comes to the rapture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I asked the kids this question. I said, were the people in Corinth, were they an unruly lot full of sin and factions and dissensions and envying and sexual immorality? They go, oh yeah. They had every problem under the world, right? And I said, well, do they all get raptured? If the rapture comes, do they all go? Well, I don't know. Well, it says it in First Corinthians. We will all be changed. The church at Corinth, the carnal church in Corinth, they're all going to be saved. And so we want to make sure that we understand that there is no one who is perfect that's going to heaven, but we want to make sure our walk kind of goes alongside with our confession of faith. You know, it's it's two parallel lines. We want to make sure that the things that we say, the things that we do, they match up with Scripture. And what Scripture says, that's what we do. And Paul is saying that in this case, we want to make sure that our confession matches our walk. We want to make sure that if they say they're going to give, that they give. And they're actively involved in doing so. Now there's one, and these acts of obedience, you know, that that accompany confession of faith, like assisting others, giving, reading, praying, various forms of service, and we are to be doers and confessors. There is a pitfall with this because we have a tendency to focus on the doing because that's easy. We don't focus on the being. What I mean by that is we forget all about Jesus and worshiping him, and we focus on what we're supposed to do rather than what we're supposed to be. We don't spend time with Christ we don't worship him. We don't get into his word. We don't try to understand him more. I know. I remember there was a time in my life where if somebody asked me about Christ, I would talk to him and say, I know him. I know who he is. I understand his intents. I understand his will. And that's where we're supposed to be. Now, with that, we are not supposed to forget doing the works. But we are supposed to have as primacy the following of Christ and doing what he said. Now, Jesus spoke of those who focused on doing rather than being. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, and here's the doing, there's three do's here. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So see, there were those who were focusing on the doing, but not the being. They didn't understand who Jesus was and what it required. The inner life with God is more important than the outward service for God. We should pay attention to the former and not neglect the latter. Now, Paul addresses those who have been opposing him in the church in chapter 10. Here And I got about six minutes. I'll get into it a little bit. It says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid. And do you see how that's in quotes? It's because somebody said that about him, that he is timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people 
who think that we live by the standards of this world. In other words, he's addressing those, the naysayers, the evildoers inside the church at Corinth who are speaking against Paul, all those who minister with him and against his ministry. And so he starts writing down very bold things in this letter. Don't make me come back there. You ever hear that from your parents? Don't make me come in there. Don't make me get up. Well, that's what Paul is saying to these guys who were in the church. Now, he's communicating it to the leaders, and the leaders will communicate it to those who are inside the church as well. Now, people in the church were probably slandering Paul and those who ministered with him, uh, and they said that Paul is living by the standards of the world or the standards of the flesh. And that's the word in the original Greek. It's the flesh. It's the evil nature. It says possibly taking, or it could have been that he was possibly taking more money or is accused of it than was necessary in order to live. That's never happened before in a church where somebody takes more money than is necessary in order to live and kind of packs their bank account. Well, that was what Paul was probably being accused of. He was possibly being accused of indulging the flesh, flesh in more ways than one probably a, a drunkard and a glutton and a wine-bibbered. Jesus was accused of those things, so it stands to reason that Paul would have been. He was p- probably accused of scheming to get things to turn out his way. People in the church that do that, <clears throat> they they do it in a, a sub, submersive or, or a, a, a clandestine type of pattern. If there's somebody who in the church wants to get something or desires something, they can use flattery. How good you look today. Oh, it speaks so well. You know, all of these things, they flatter you. And then the person might act in such a way where they start, start calling people and talking to them in the church. People who might have influence inside the church. Not that they want to have the influence outwardly, but they certainly want to have it. And so they try to sway people by murmuring and gossiping throughout the church, but just one at a time. And this evil happens in more than one way uh, in the church. We, in the past, on a couple of occasions, have had people come into the church and they start going to one person and then to another person and then to another person. And they talk about their financial hardships and they end up gleaning money from all the different people inside the church. We had uh, one person or persons who went through the church that they covered about seven or eight different people and couples and garnered hundreds of dollars from all of them, not telling any other one what they had done and also coming to the church and asking the church for help, just fleecing the body of Christ. And so you need to be aware that that stuff does go on. Not that the Lord wouldn't tell you to help out somebody, but these things do go on. Now, um, a couple more verses. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. This is a threat against those inside the church who are doing harm. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete now these are strong words you better watch it because i'm going to come there and somebody's going to suffer if you don't straighten up is basically what are you saying 
Now, he, he uses um, three things here, but we're going to get into those three things next week and how he's going to implement this and the tools that he is going to use to make sure that the church is living the way it's supposed to live. And remember, he's talking to those who are purposely being disobedient and, and uh, seditious inside the church. He goes, I'm going to deal with you guys, and I'm not going to be nice about it. In closing, if you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. They hid the total amount from the apostles that they sold the, the property for. They went and laid a certain amount of money at the feet of the apostles, and Peter asked them about it, and they lied about it, and both of them died as a result, fell dead right there. And that's apostolic authority that is there. I don't think pastors have that, uh, but certainly the apostles did, and they were able to exercise it by the power of God. So we're going to continue this next week and how Paul implements this discipline here. But let's go ahead and pray now as we come to a close in our service. Father, we would ask that you would help us to remember these lessons here, that not only the COVID, what's going on, and being able to look at it from a biblical perspective and the politics and who becomes president and the, the taking away of individual liberties. Help us to be patient and endure until we see you, Lord, uh, until this life ends, whichever comes first. And we also pray that you would help us to learn from the lessons that Paul writes down here in Second Corinthians about giving and doing so with a cheerful heart, hilariously, and also that we might be warned, admonished to do good and have our walks match up with our confession. And Father, we'll trust in you to accomplish all this. And we ask for your forgiveness when we fail, purposely fail. But we know you are gracious, you are kind, and you are full of mercy. And we call upon you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen.